Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Fladwood. We're at Soder. It's May 7th, 2021. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Welcome. First question for you, and the biggest question is why wine? Oh, uh, why wine? Why not wine? Uh, that's, a, that's a long one. Uh, why wine? Um, I guess wine just kind of happened to me. Um, I definitely didn't start here. Um, my first career was uh, one of a soldier. I was uh, joined the army out of high school and um, it has nothing to do with wine, of course, but um, obviously it led me here. It made me who I am. And um, yeah, wine was kind of what saved me um, after uh, getting out of the army and I'll spare you all of the army stories uh, as best as I possibly can. But after getting out of the army um, was, uh, had a as many people do, a rough time getting back into the world of civilians. Uh, spent some time in Iraq in 2004, and um, wine um, was moderately interesting to me. Um, it had kind of been mentioned to me, um, and someone had sent me a book on winemaking in the army, and um, so it was sort of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but my family never drank wine. We didn't really have any roots in wine. We have roots in Oregon, um, and getting out of the army I knew I wanted to do one thing and that was go to school wanted to um, try to do something better with my life I suppose the army was clearly not not working Mm -hmm. and um, so I uh, enrolled in Washington State University which I have a long um, history my family does uh, all the way back to my grandfather who went there after World War II that's my mother aunt and uncle and you name it my brother and so I um, decided to go to school, see what, see what worked. And um, as it so happened, they had a viticulture and enology program very much in the infancy. Uh, this was back in 2005, I think. So um, it wasn't a full major. It was a, um, it was a bachelor in science in horticulture with a specialization of viticulture and enology, uh, which worked great for me because uh, as it so turns out, for the first time ever, I was good at school, and that's when I was studying plants. I love plants, and school has never come easy to me, but plants, for some reason, did. It was Mm -hmm. fascinating, and it just so happens to make wine, you have to grow these things called grapes upon plants, and so that became even more fascinating to me, and things started to just snowball, Mm -hmm. and um, I kind of leaned back upon this this idea of winemaking, and um, so I wanted to give it a shot. I wanted to see um, what it would be like to, to make wine. And honestly, I was more interested in growing the grapes. Mm-hmm. I liked being outside. It felt good. I was a pretty, you know, all over the place soul. Uh, hard, to, hard to be around people, and grapes don't need to be around that many people. And so I was like, well, this could be, this could be pretty interesting. So I studied, I studied that, and things were progressing pretty well. Um, up until the point when I went and did an internship in France in 2000 and I think it was 2005 or 6. Um, I don't actually remember. Um, but I worked at a place called Chateau Quentinoc in Saint-Emilion and um, they very much changed me for the better. Um, 
maybe for the better. They impassioned me, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. uh, I gained passion from them more towards winemaking, less towards necessarily just specifically the grape growing. Um, clearly there's uh, an intimate bond. You can't do one without having respect for the other. But I recognized then that winemaking seemed to be drawing me um, with a you know greater sense of magnetism towards exclusively mm -hmm. uh, wanting to learn about making wine, and um, so that was I mean that was a beautiful opportunity. Um, the French are have a, have, a, have a different way about making wine. Mm. And, uh, it's 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 just been there longer. It's more of a, a normal thing to us. It's a bit more special, mm -hmm. and. Um, so that was interesting to sort of see the, the sense of relaxation around wine, but how wine was their society, or at least there was a society around wine. It was ingrained within the French, um, and that's not exclusive to the French, the Spanish, the Italians, the places where wines were made for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so that was uh, a life-changing experience, and so I went from vineyards to, to winery at that point. And um, after, I only got to be there for a few months, unfortunately, but long enough for profound moment to happen and um, at that point I came back to the United States to continue my studies I needed to finish I wanted to finish my bachelor's degree mm -hmm. and um, another sort of I guess just series of fortunate events uh, happened upon me and I um, just by chance met a local winemaker um, a winery called Basalt Cellars in Clarkston Washington and uh, the winemaker and owner there is um, um, Rick Wassum and he's just an absolutely lovely individual and he was kind enough uh, to let me come help him in the winery while going to school didn't pay me anything i didn't ask him for anything and i didn't need anything i just was interested i wanted to I had this sort of newfound passion and you know can i can i put it to work can i um can i learn and do and can't imagine a more a more profound opportunity to, mm -hmm. to, to, to work and do, or, or learn and do, mm -hmm. one of those two. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it sort of solidifies um, in your brain um, exactly what you're learning about, mm -hmm. getting to do it. So Rick was nice enough to let me come uh, work harvest. Um, it wasn't a big operation. We made, uh, we processed around 20 tons of grapes. Uh, but it was enough to, to get my, uh, to get my, my, my feet wet. Mm -hmm. Uh, literally and pun intended, you know, I guess pun intended, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, so I did that and um, I worked there for the first harvest and then it was that, at that point Rick sort of said, you know, I think we need to start paying you to, so I can expect you to show up every single day. <laughs> and I just said, you got it, man, like music to my ears. I would love to A, know I'm welcome to show up every day and if you're going to give me some of that green stuff to do it, like I will be here. And um, so I would plan was basically I'd go to school from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. And at 2 p.m. I'd drive the half an hour to Clarkston and I'd work until the work was done at 8 or 9 p.m. And um, that worked out really well. Mm -hmm. And so I spent um, probably a year and a half or so working in his cellar uh, while finishing up uh, my school and um, finding time to go to France, finding time to do all sorts of stuff. Um, fast forward. Um, 2008, I graduated from Washington State, had a, a bit of experience under my belt working both in France um, and in, in Washington. 
um, I knew I wanted to come back to Oregon. I'm from Oregon. My family's from Oregon. We've been here for a number of generations, and there's something about Oregon mm -hmm. that uh, it, it gets in your blood. And um, once you get it in, you can't get it out. And um, I mean, it's, it's all around us. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it's going to rain on us any second, and I'm going to be perfectly happy with that. So I spent the morning walking the vineyards, getting rained on. I didn't walk any faster. I just walked the same pace, just saying, I'm good with it. Mm -hmm. It feels great. It feels right. Um, so 2008, I came back to Oregon. Um, I lined up a, a, an internship at Shea Wine Cellars um, and had just an absolutely lovely experience there. I worked for uh, Drew Voigt, who was the winemaker. It was his first year as winemaker there. And um, he's, a, he's a great winemaker and um, had already sort of put down some roots in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And again, just continued along that sort of series of fortunate events. Um, uh, a winemaker um, from, uh, who worked in New Zealand from Oregon by the name of Jen Parr just happened to be coming through Oregon towards the end of harvest and she knew Drew and so she was coming by to taste some wines. And um, just happened to be talking to her and um, she basically asked me, you ever considered going to New Zealand to work a harvest? And I just said, yeah, I'd absolutely love to. And she says, well, you want a job? <laughs> and um, I just said, yeah, I'd take a job and, uh, as, an, you know, as another intern uh, in, in uh, New Zealand, absolutely. So she signed me up on the spot and um, I went. I mm -hmm. went to New Zealand. I told my significant other, my, uh, now my wife, then my, my girlfriend, that I'm going to go to New Zealand for four months and I'll see you when I get back. And uh, had just the most amazing time in New Zealand. It's a, a country not unlike Oregon. Mm -hmm. I'm saying Oregon's a country at this point. <laughs> and um, kind people is beautiful in central Otago. Um, it's varied. They grow Pinot. I very much wanted to hone in my study, that to be in Pinot and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And that's they, they do that in Central Otago. Mm -hmm. So I went down there for four months um, and had just a glorious time learning about winemaking, grape growing. I was there to do whatever they wanted me to do. And I was happy that I got to see the countryside, uh, which is, is magnificent. Um, again, fast forward that four months, I came back to Oregon and um, was uh, fortunate enough to um, help out Drew, who was still at Shea at that time in the cellar, racking some barrels, cleaning some barrels. Um, I was, again, interested in doing whatever it took to get into this industry. And um, again, another series of, uh, it's the same series, but they're continued fortunate events. Uh, he introduced me to Tony Soder, who I have worked for for the last, you know, almost 15 years or 14 years, I've lost track. Um, and um, Tony was looking for someone to, to come on and um, work harvest for a couple of months, but um, with the potential to stay on. And um, Tony and I sort of had an agreement that uh, he'd hire me for three months. If, uh, if it didn't work, no problem. We would just go our separate ways. If it did work, you know, we would talk about the idea of uh, staying on and um, working in the cellar. And uh, again, I'm, I'm proud to say and happy and lucky and fortunate, all those words. To say that was 2009, and now we're sitting in 2021, and um, at this point in time, I'm, again, fortunate to call myself the winemaker here. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, why wine? <laughs> uh, I think 
why wine because mm -hmm. because uh, and again I've never been an artist uh, I've always been creative I've always been someone who's more in my head than I am present to the outer outer world and um, I think wine saved me it, it allowed me to channel um, the craziness into something creative and uh, I'm really sorry about that you guys that's okay um, People won't stop calling me these days. That's the that's the newfound problem of being a winemaker. <laughs> Nobody will leave you alone. <laughs> so I have to go walk through vineyards in the rain. Um, the vines, the vines are there for me. Um, but yeah, the wine uh, wine making saved me. It, it was a an opportunity to get to work um, in a pretty disruptive uh, mind frame that is my mind was pretty disrupted uh, it was not uh, suitable for a lot of personal interaction and that was just where I was in my life uh, coming back out of the army and um, winemaking allowed me to channel all that energy all that disruption into something that was tangible um, something you could you could drink, people could enjoy something that's art. And I think for the first time in my life, I'd actually become a tangible artist. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know that at first, you know, when I was just hired to be the guy that just, you know, scrub the barrels, clean the barrels, rack the barrels. Um, that was great. I was, I was interested. It was keeping me busy. And over time, I realized that uh, winemaking isn't just about creating something that people enjoy with dinner. It was, it's about creating art. It's about creating something that transcends people's understanding of what drink can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the reason why you see wine fetching um, high prices. You know, some wines are extraordinarily expensive and um, it's, uh, it's magical. Mm -hmm. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm here to thank, thank wine because I, I, you know, I wouldn't be here if it, with it, if it wasn't for wine. Mm -hmm. So um, I try to remind myself that, you know, on a regular basis. It's pretty powerful, so, pretty powerful thing. Sorry, that was yeah. a long question and a long answer. That's, that's You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that takes all the Interview burden off. Interview done. Yeah, great. <laughs> it takes I'll all the burden you. off of me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, kind of fast-forwarding through the through your time in the Army, but I'm, I am curious, coming out of school, what was the attraction to you for that, and what did you kind of foresee as your future? Coming out of the coming, Army? Sorry, come, sorry, I'm sorry. Coming out of high school oh, and going into the Army. Oh, God. Uh, man, I have to go way back. I'm 38. Uh, I feel like I'm about 50, I'll be honest. The Army will take years off. Winemaking will take years off your life, but the Army takes a lot of years off your life, too. Um, but, um, yeah, coming in high school, especially in that last year, you know, there's like that realization, like, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. I, think, I think kids these days are smarter and they're like you know maybe I'm just not going to do anything and um, that's pretty great and I think I wish I would have thought of that but I didn't and what I knew I didn't want to do was sit at a desk I knew I wanted I was very athletic I was very adventurous trained to be that way by my parents um, I didn't like to stand still my mother is like a hummingbird she will never stand still she's all over the place in a very magical way and I am basically the male version of my mom. And um, I love that. I love my mom. But um, I knew I didn't want to have to stand still. I knew I didn't want to, I wanted to do, I'm a doer. And um, I wasn't necessarily ready to go to college and where I knew I would have to be very studious. I was never very studious. I got straight B's. 
right? Perfect 3.0 without ever really doing homework. Mm -hmm. And that was good for me. I liked that. And um, so I never wasn't ready to go to college. And so um, my mom was very unhappy with that decision that I really wanted to um, do something very adventurous. And that was kind of the first thing that came to mind. It's like, you know, that could be pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. What if I... What if I pursued the, that opportunity? And I didn't know what I was doing. You don't, nobody knows what they're doing by joining the Army. Um, recruiters are there not to tell you what it is you're gonna do. They're there to get you to sign those papers. And I signed them. And um, I will never forget the moment <laughs> that I actually joined the Army. Uh, not signed the papers, but flew on an airplane to Fort Benning, Georgia, and drove past the sign that said, Fort Benning, home of the infantry. I just said, I guess I joined the infantry. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, you know, touche, mm -hmm. United States government. You got me. Um, I wouldn't take it back, though. Uh, and so, yeah, the idea was I wanted to do something, something more interesting than just the status quo. Mm -hmm. I, wanted to, I wanted to explore. I wanted to discover who I was. And I thought this was an interesting way to do, to do that. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I put my, put my John Hancock down on those lines and signed away my life mm -hmm. for, um, for, for four years, really for six years, but mm -hmm. uh, for, for four solid years. And um, I got what I asked for, I got adventure. I got a lot of boredom as well and a lot of idiocracy, more idiocracy than I, I cared for and that's why I got out. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, again, the Army, I, I should talk more about the Army because the Army did lead me to, um, to actually getting that first initial desire to want to learn about making wine. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, there's one person that really, there's two people, there's one person uh, in particular, his name was Sergeant Nicholas, he was my squad leader. And um, this sounds like a Vietnam story, doesn't it? My squad leader. Uh, it was Iraq, so it wasn't, uh, it was in Baghdad. But um, the mystery person sent me a care package, and you get a lot of care packages in the Army. It's like every couple days you get a care package. Sometimes it's from your parents, your brother and sisters, but most of the time it's from people you have no idea who they are. They're just organizations, and they're going to send you the most generic things, but it's, they care. Mm -hmm. It's in the word, care package. They send you romance novels and socks that you can't wear, and you wouldn't because they're uncomfortable. You know the ones with the stitching, like in the front of the toes? Who the hell likes those? <laughs> and then nasal spray. They always send you nasal spray because they don't know where you're at. They're just sending it to an address. Mm -hmm. um, but somebody, uh, rather than sending me a romance novel, sent me a book on winemaking. And it was a very simple book, but it was From Vines to Wines by, um, uh, his last name's Cox. And I can't remember if it's Larry Cox. It might be Larry Cox, but anyways, it's Cox. And um, I had no, I had time on my hands, so I was either playing video games or reading books or patrolling. And in this instance, I was reading this book on winemaking. And Sergeant Nicholas, entering my squad leader, walked along, and he was older than me. I was 20 at the time, maybe 21. And he kind of walked by, and um, he was probably 35 or so, and he just kind of did a double take. And he's like, saw this book I was reading, because I'm sitting you know, out, out on the porch in Baghdad in the sun, the pages are literally falling out because it's so hot there. And um, he's just like, oh, Specialist Flatwood, uh, you like wine? And I just said, no, I don't. But somebody sent me this book and it seems pretty interesting. And he's, as it, as it turns out, he had a whole sort of previous life of, uh, he'd been in the Navy and been stationed in Japan and loved wine, loved it. 
And so we had all these stories of not wine making, but drinking wine and um, of going to estate sales in Japan and finding these amazing sellers of, you know, that were just getting passed along. And he's like, we used to be able to, you know, get these, you fill in the blank, you know, uh, Rolf Shields or, or whoever, Petrus, I'm making those up. I don't know who it was. Uh, but getting great bottles of wine from the great domains or the great chateaus or wherever else for not that much money. And um, that was really interesting that, uh, that wine had that profound um, uh, impact on the world. I had no idea. Again, my, my parents didn't really drink growing up. They had a bad teenager for a son, and they knew better than to have alcohol in the house because it would have been my alcohol uh, to their dis... Uh, yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't have been happy. They were already unhappy with me. Um, but uh, so the interesting thing was is that, you know, we had all this time on our hands. Even when we were patrolling in our Humvee, we would wear um, intercom system, headsets, and rather, yeah, we were paying attention, you know, trying not to get blown up or shot or in trying to accomplish the mission. Um, but we were able to talk to each other, me being the driver of the Humvee and Sergeant Nicholas being the, uh, the, the navigator, the, the vehicle commander. He would tell me about wine. He mm -hmm. would tell me about his journeys in Japan um, and around the world um, and how much he loved wine. And that had a really profound impact on me. Um, and again, the funny thing is I've, I've actually looked, maybe he'll, maybe he'll watch this, but uh, I've actually looked for him uh, for the last like 15 or, or so years and never been able to find a trace of him. And uh, would love, love, love to send him a bottle of wine. Because somewhere he has no idea that that, that that comment and those conversations kind of led to this. Mm -hmm. And so it would be pretty amazing to find him. That's so, um, crazy. yeah, that's not all made up, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been, but it wasn't. So, Amazing. yeah. So you mentioned the you mentioned kind of the the most profound part for you once you got into wine was was when you start when you travel, when you went to France and, and saw wine from a different kind of a different perspective. I'm curious in those as you were getting into the education and and the working in wine, what what was it about the work that was appealing to you? What what was it about the industry that was appealing to you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, and it's probably true to this day, my answer, the thing that's the most interesting to me about this industry, about the work, is I love both the adventure and the risk, <laughs> uh, the thrill. Um, wine's not just made. It's not, we like to say wine is grown. And, that's not a completely true statement. It's not untrue, but it's not true. Um, we grow grapes with the intention of making wine, meaning that we are deliberately growing grapes to try to make the best wine out of it. Mm -hmm. But it takes an immense amount of work and talent to transform even the very best grapes in the world into the very best wine in the world. And um, that part right there makes this job very appealing to me, uh, the sense of both uh, personal competition, that is competition with your own self, uh, competition with other wineries, um, trying, I'm a perfectionist, uh, probably from birth, I guess, or, or shortly thereafter, uh, trying to make a better wine every single year. Um, it, it rules my life. I mean, wine is my life, and um, I love it that way. Um, it's both caused me the most stress I've ever had, but also the most pleasure. And so um, we endure the stress, we endure that, 
hardship and the journey to arrive at um, something magical. It's, mm -hmm. um, I want everybody in our tasting room to be tasting the wine as just like I intended it to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the about your uh, experience at Washington State. What what, did, what were the biggest takeaways from your for formalized wine education? Um, yeah, I'd be probably one of the Washington State. I don't know if they'll like this answer. I guess they don't have a choice. Um, to me, you know, winemaking, an education in winemaking is not necessary, but it sure helps. Um, having a solid understanding of science um, never hurts you. But I don't also think it's totally necessary to uh, to end up as a winemaker going that route. You don't have to follow that route. I think everyone has their own route. I'm happy I went that route. I, I, I value the science of making wine because I believe it makes me a more consistently great artist. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me a great artist. What makes me a great artist is whatever what comes with, from within in my collective experience. But understanding the science I do believe me believes makes me or enables me to be a more consistently great artist. So um, no matter how you do it, eventually you have to pay homage to the science behind it. Having said that, science will never make wine. It's impossible. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Um, wine is made by people and grown on plants that's, again, at a level of sophistication that I think as human beings we'll never understand. And I think the sooner we just understand that we're never going to completely understand it, the better off we're going to be. Because mm -hmm. then we can just accept what we don't see. And um, again, that's another thing I love about wine is there's, there's things that happen that we can't explain. Mm -hmm. And I'm completely okay with that. In fact, I'm beyond okay. I, I adore it. Mm -hmm. So um, again, having said that, is, is, you know, going to Washington State studying winemaking necessary, not for everybody. For me it was. Mm -hmm. um, if my kids choose to be winemakers, they're going to be winemakers. Um, they're going to go to Washington State too. Um, it's an absolutely lovely school and the very greatest thing my mother ever did for me was talk me into going to Washington State. It was the very greatest thing. It is such a lovely school. No offense to Linfield, I never went to Linfield. I'm sure it's a lovely school as well. <laughs> Um, Washington State, obviously, much bigger school. You're you're much less known, right? You're just a you're a drop in the bucket. Um, my organic chemistry classes were four to five hundred people in a stadium. If you fell or tripped, you were you're going to end up in the hospital. So, um, but I wouldn't change it. I loved it. I loved that the university is located in the middle of nowhere, and that right there um, cultivates or forces students and people to relate to one another because mm -hmm. you can't avoid each other. It's not in a city where, again, you're another drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. um, you have to interact, it makes people be friendly to each other, and uh, I think that's a really nice environment. So, mm -hmm. yeah, my kids are going to Washington State. I've already signed them up. Mark, They're five. Mark it, mark it down. They're five years old. They're already going there. <laughs> Choice taken away. One last thing to think about. Yeah, nice. my grandfather, uh, you know, he passed away a couple years ago. He went to Washington State out of uh, World War II, and uh, he would have wanted it that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he chose the right school, and he sent my mother there and aunt and uncle, and 
uh, yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the place to be for me. It's only fair. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, coming off of, the, like you have the, the formal education, you're also working working in a winery, then you're, you're traveling abroad. Tell me about sort of developing your, your, your preferred wine, wine style, but both from a drinking perspective, but also from a future making perspective. Yeah. Um, what were the wines you liked? Well, I don't probably have an answer to that question. Um, I mean, Merlot is obviously very close to my heart because of my time in Saint-Emilion. Um, that is the grape, the most predominant grape on the right bank. Um, I'll be quick to say I love all wine, all good wine. I don't care for bad wine. I'll drink it. I will try any wine and make up my own opinion. Um, when I was in school, again, not coming from a family that drank wine, I really had no knowledge of what wine was. I had to sort of, you know, like everybody, you have to, you have to formulate it along the way. And I think what we have to remember is winemaking is a trade, it's an art. And um, you learn so much, probably 99.9% .9 of what you learn and what you do, you learn on the job. Mm -hmm. um, why did I end up in making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay becoming infatuated with them? I have no idea. It really was a product of time and place. And um, I was working with neither of those in either France or Washington. Um, again, I love uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. I love Malbec. I love Merlot. I love Chanziovese. I love fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to work in Oregon. I wanted to be in Oregon. There was a, a draw, that magnetism. Um, Oregon is this, it's a singularity and the, the gravity is so powerful you can't help but being drawn towards it. And um, Pinot's kind of the same thing. And so my first experience with Pinot was my first vintage here in Oregon in 2008. And let's just say it, it struck a chord mm -hmm. somewhere up here that uh, maybe I didn't even register at the time or, or couldn't even understand, but it did. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that precocious little grape kind of wooed me. Uh, later on, um, probably four or five years later, Chardonnay sort of did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I can see myself making nothing other than Pinot and Chardonnay for the rest of my life and being completely happy. <laughs> You mentioned some of the people who kind of had influence on you as well. Um, you work in Washington, obviously work with Drew here in Oregon. What, what were your biggest takeaways from them as, as, as sort of a, from a mentoring capacity? What were the biggest things you learned about winemaking in, a, in the more kind of informal way rather than from uh, formal education? Um, I think, you know, the, the thing that, the one common thing that everybody that I've been fortunate enough to work for is that you, in the end you have to trust your instincts. And winemaking is again an instinctual mm -hmm. art. It's art. It's again, you know, I think of painters obviously being a very um, um, known medium for art. You know, I don't think painters necessarily uh, formulate things um, step by step. I think they probably just, just paint. Mm -hmm. And sure they have some ideas and they probably practice. So do I. Um, but all of these people, the one thing they have in common is that they have to trust their instincts. And that was um, very much made known to me, uh, especially, especially with the, um, the, the, the Roscoms. Uh, Nicole and, and Franz Roscom of Chateau Quentinoc was 
use your instincts. Mm -hmm. And um, a funny, I'll share, I'll share a story that um, still sticks with me this day is um, when I was working, again, just as an intern at Chateau Kensinok, I was given the task of racking what was probably, let's just call it 60 barrels of Merlot from barrel to tank. And um, so I got all my stuff ready, um, got the, the pumps and the hoses cleaned, um, went over, jumped up, they, they made everything in concrete tanks, these beautiful concrete tanks where one tank um, is connected right to the next one. You'd never know you were standing on top of four tanks. And I'm up there on top of the tank ready to spray it out because there were spider webs, the tanks are just left. There's spider webs and everything inside this tank. And I'm standing up there and um, the Madame, uh, Madame Roscam Nicole came along and, and she spoke very little English, but she, uh, and I spoke a little French at the time. And she said, you know, what, what are you doing? And I just said, oh, I'm gonna wash the tank. And she said, it's fine. And I just said, well, there's spiders in here. And she said to me, uh, it's the, I don't know what. Uh, of winemaking, don't worry about it. And it's the, I, again, je ne parle pas français. So it was the, um, uh, je sais quoi, mm -hmm. je ne sais quoi. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I just said, oh, that's really interesting. She literally didn't care. And um, perhaps there was something to that. I was just like, huh, interesting. Does it really matter? And maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, I don't leave spiders in my, my, my wine, just so you guys know. But it sort of reiterated this instincts. Mm -hmm. Just, it's going to be fine. The wine's going to be great. Um, maybe don't sweat the small stuff. Um, and that was, that was really interesting. Um, Drew at Shea was, uh, was much um, cleaner much uh, a little bit more adamant about cleaning but still had that air of like it's going to be great you know we're going to do these punch downs we're going to do these pump overs we're going to do the best we can um, you know don't get stuck on the formalities don't get stuck on the little things um, Rick uh, at Basalt Cellars was absolutely that way he was a pharmacist so I think by nature he was definitely the cleanest mm -hmm. of the people and cleanliness is, is great. Like, we have to have cleanliness, but um, you can spend a lot of time uh, or waste a lot of time being a bit too sterile, being a bit too careful. Mm. And sort of as I've progressed along winemaking, uh, obviously my last mentor being uh, Tony Soder, who I who is just still count as my mentor, uh, even though he calls me the winemaker, um, um, has very much been the one who really hit that home of and much more like the French of like you know what we probably don't have to worry about the absolute sterility here in every step of the process but use your instincts mm -hmm. clean when you know it needs to be cleaned when there's uh, when there's an issue at hand but in other words we have more work to do and something may be more important than spraying the spiders out of the tanks <laughs> Instinct is such an interesting word, and we hear it a lot with, with winemaking. I'm always curious for, for people, at what point do you trust your instincts? At what point do you feel like you are, you know enough to have instincts to trust? Well, I don't think you ever know enough. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you never know enough. Uh, but that's what's, that's what's interesting about the job. It's, uh, again, I think if Tony was here, he's been making wine since the 70s. I wasn't born in the 70s. 
and um, I know that he would say the same thing, like, you're always learning something. Mm -hmm. At what point do you trust your instincts? When you just know you can trust them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you still have to always uh, humble yourself. Um, I've made plenty of wines that have scored very high, but that doesn't mean that I know everything. And uh, remembering that um, there's still another opportunity to either do better or worse. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to, I value my instincts. I've proven, my instincts have proven to me, maybe is a better way. Maybe like the instincts are uh, a different part of me or a different person inside of me. Mm -hmm. They've proven to me that they're, that they're pretty trustworthy. Um, so maybe the answer to your question is just with enough time. And I'll leave it very ambiguous like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, meeting Tony and having kind of an agreement about a sort of a trial here, a harvest trial. Tell me about that harvest, your first harvest here, and, and how you felt it went, and, and if you felt that this was a, a place you wanted to be. Um, it was absolutely brutal. It was the hardest harvest I've ever done. Um, but I made it that way because I was determined to prove to him that that three months was not going to just be three months. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a lot longer. Was it, was it going to be 14 years? I, I didn't, you know, who knew? But I didn't want it to be three months. And so if there's one thing I was, I was a hard worker. And uh, I will give the, uh, both my mother and father, but also the military, absolute credit for that. Um, working hard was something I was very good at. And, um, but we worked very, very long hours. I've never worked nearly as many hours. We had a small crew. Um, it was really just um, Tony and James and um, myself and maybe one other person. And uh, so I worked 16-hour days and I was uh, no problem. It was kind of a get kicked in the butt and say, thank you, sir, may I have another the next day. And um, I definitely remember going home and my brain hurting. And uh, the only thing that's ever hurt my brain that much was organic chemistry. And um, but it hurt, it hurt at the end of the day uh, because there was, I realized at that point how much there was to learn. The other thing I learned is, or realized is I didn't know Spanish and um, how much of a disadvantage I would be uh, to not know Spanish if I really wanted to be successful. And I was, I was watching people around me who also didn't know Spanish. Tony's not one of those. Tony speaks very good Spanish. And so I saw that, I was like, wow, this guy can uh, speak to the people who are working the vines. Like, how important is that? Mm -hmm. Extraordinary would be the answer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I took it upon myself right then if I lasted or survived uh, through this three months, either because of luck or because of truly hard work and emerging talent, that I would dedicate myself to learning Spanish as well. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, but the harvest was very, very long, very difficult. Uh, we made really great wines and I learned um, because I had very little knowledge at that time, I learned an immense amount, uh, more than I could, more than I could even understood or understand. So at the end of it, did you obviously you were offer, offered a chance to stay? Did you consider not staying, or was this no, the place you wanted to be? No, absolutely not. Yeah, it was not. No way. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is everything I wanted. Yeah, I. Uh, um, no, of course I stayed. Um, this is a job people would, would have probably killed for. And I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where it was actually being offered to me. I would say it was a bit surreal. Uh, I probably, again, 
didn't even understand the, the, the gravitas of the situation. But no, yeah, absolutely, I stayed. It um, wasn't even a, a moment of hesitation. It probably took me a nanosecond to say yes. Uh, I don't even know that I had to say yes. I think it was already assumed based on the way we were all working together that mm -hmm. we would just keep going. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's basically, we've never really looked back. What was your original role after that harvest? Um, well, I was, uh, during harvest, it was basically, you know, intern, you know, um, which is a great spot to be. It's, you have no responsibilities, you know. It's not your fault if things get screwed up. You just have to work hard. It's great. Um, after that harvest, um, I became a seller master and took over sort of seller operations. Um, again, we were a small winery at the time, and um, thinking back on, you know, if, if I applied for harvest to myself um, and, and lasted three months, would I promote myself to seller master now? No, no way. I wouldn't have been qualified. <laughs> we make, uh, this, the, the stakes are too high. and. Um, I definitely would have hired myself. There's no doubt about it. And I think I have a couple times now in uh, you know, different versions of me. I think my assistant winemaker reminds me a lot of myself right now and she's amazing. She's absolutely amazing, so. So you mentioned obviously Tony Soder and, and James Cahill. Uh, what, what did you learn from them and, and what, was the, what, was your expect, what was your understanding of the expectation here from them? Well, um, it's, uh, it's been extraordinarily clear to me from Tony that, you know, the expectation is, is nothing less than perfection. Um, he's, again, another one of those memories that you'll never forget. And I think he said, you know, you, Chris, you should strive for perfection and only be satisfied, satisfied if you've arrived at excellence. But you have to strive for perfection to get to excellence. You can't strive for excellence. Because I think then you only arrive at, like, pretty good. Um, and that just fit well with me. I've, again, always been a perfectionist. And um, I've always been my biggest critic. And uh, yeah, that's tough. You know, it's tough to be that hard on yourself. But um, I think that's OK. I think when you're, when you're doing what I'm trying to do, what I, what I do, um, it's a fitting personality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Tony's very much always both embodied that, but also reiterated, you know, that um, he has extraordinarily high standards, and I have uh, clearly shown him that I have the same exact standards and accept nothing less than um, than amazing. So tell me about your your progression then from cellar master to winemaker. Um, yeah, so I was a cellar master, so starting in basically uh, let's just call it like December of two thousand nine. Um, I think I stayed cellar master for a couple years. And again, those were a hard couple years. There's a lot to learn. Uh, going from intern to now somebody with a ton of responsibilities, um, I realized that I wasn't nearly as professional as I needed to be. And so I needed to um, start organizing my life in a way that I never had. I needed to learn Spanish. I was fortunate, again, in that series of fortunate events that um, one of the ranch hands here, um, now my cellar master, who's been my cellar master for the last, I don't know, 10 years or more, um, is, uh, is, is, is from Oaxaca. So speaks native Spanish, uh, speak very little English then. And I, if there's one thing I am in this world is I'm stubborn. And um, I decided right then I was gonna take full advantage of this. Uh, I would trade him uh, Spanish for English. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I had no problem with that. It was a time, both in my life, both in the life of Soder Vineyards, where I could, I could ask all these questions. I could constantly be saying, como se dice? And then I would just act them out as if I was a three-year-old, you know? Como se dice? Throw, you know? Mm. Um, and just so it turns out, um, in his former life, uh, when he was uh, residing in Oaxaca, he was a, a third-grade Spanish teacher. And so um, that worked out perfect because he had patience. He's um, one of my very most valued em uh, employees. I, I honestly care about the guy um, and uh, for many reasons. And definitely one of those is we've made a lot of wines together and he's, he's helped me learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. And at this point he can speak pretty good English too. So I feel like it's been a really great sort of reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I stayed cellar master for two years. Um, I started avidly um, going after learning Spanish, going after trying to be more professional, being more proficient, more efficient, um, trying to gain as much knowledge as humanly and inhumanly possible. Um, and it was a long two years. Um, I'm happy to say it was a very successful two years for me. Um, I had really great vintage of 2010, and then in 2011, um, I was promoted to assistant winemaker. Um, at that point in Soder Vineyards, we were really in sort of an expansionist uh, um, paradigm. Mm -hmm. And we started uh, really moving towards creating um, our North Valley product as its own uh, sort of entity. Um, it would still be owned by Soder Vineyards, but it would have its own identity is a better way to say it. And we took it from you know a thousand cases to seven or eight, maybe nine thousand cases, and then had some individual projects w underneath that. And that sort of again caused sort of a separation within Soder Vineyards. James Cahill, who had been the winemaker here, um, was uh, became a partner in North Valley, and um, the, we didn't have enough space here to make the North Valley wine, so we contracted space at another winery. So he went on and moved down to this other winery to uh, oversee that part. And so that left a lot of room for me. So I was here as the assistant winemaker, uh, really just under the mentorship of Tony at that time, um, to just concentrate on making uh, our most precious wines from Mineral Springs. Mm -hmm. um, so I did, uh, I was assistant winemaker for one or two years. Um, again, I don't like to toot my own horn, but I guess I was good enough to be promoted to associate winemaker. I showed that I had, um, was self-sustainable. Um, I didn't need constant supervision or oversight, and um, that, was, that was, you know, music to my ears. So they promoted me to associate winemaker, and then maybe just another year down the road, they promoted me to winemaker. Um, Mostly just of our state wines, winemaker of our state wines. Um, James would still be winemaker of our North Valley wines. Um, um, just a, for the last three or four years, I've been winemaker of the entire company. Uh, and uh, at this point, um, honestly, just for the last couple of days, North Valley um, has been sold to uh, a different company. Mm -hmm. And James uh, moved along uh, to run the North Valley operations. Mm -hmm. um, and so it doesn't really change my life. Uh, I've been making the wines for the last four or five or more years um, and will continue to make the wines for the foreseeable future. In your 
in your mind and from your kind of as as you're going along there from assistant to associate to winemaker to expanded winemaker how does the how does the role change and how does the sort of the expectation or the the pressure for yourself change well the pressure only goes one direction in this industry and it just kind of continually moves up unfortunately sort of at like a logarithmic uh you know uh, path uh it would be nice if it was linear but it's not uh the higher you go uh you have vastly more responsibilities and um, and more expected of you. Mm -hmm. um, again, that whole there's no such thing as ex uh, accepted failure in this industry, not in this company, and not not by me either. I don't accept failure um, for myself or my my uh, my employees in the winery, um, my winemaking team. So um, yeah, the more you the more you get, the more you get and the more you have to give back and um, but you know I think the thing you have to remind yourself is you're blessed with that opportunity not everybody gets that opportunity and so I think you have to remind yourself I love coming on to Mineral Springs Ranch every morning and looking up this place and like this is my opportunity to get to do this this isn't nobody gave this to me mm -hmm. this wasn't wasn't I didn't deserve it um, I earned it and so I've earned that stress. I've earned the opportunity to bear that burden. And I'm happy to carry the flag. I'll be the flag bearer, no problem. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenging job if you can't tell. It was a lot easier getting shot at, let me tell you. The stress was far less than what it is these days, but I'll choose this job over that job any day of the week. I assume that working for, for, for Soder adds a little bit extra pressure because of Tony Soder's name and, and, and fame before this. Uh, has that been something that's affected you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it's basically true of what I've said is um, he runs this company as if he was the winemaker and uh, therefore expects just as good of results. Honestly, he expects better results. and. Um, I give them to him. Um, I think Tony has put me into the position of winemaker because he knows that I can um, exceed even what his expectations were of himself. And um, again, I don't. I try to be very humble, and I, I know I'm sounding like I have no humility right now. But um, every once in a while, mm -hmm. um, I have to remind myself that it's uh, yeah, make make extraordinary wines, mm -hmm. and uh, just want the world to see them. And I want Tony to be proud of him. And to this day, um, I, don't, I don't think I've let him down in that regard. Tell me about sort of your winemaking philosophy, or, or if it's easier, the, the winemaking philosophy here. What, what are you going for with these wines, and what are, what are sort of the, the goals of the finished product from your perspective? Well, I'll be, uh, I'll be completely honest. I like pretty substantial wines, uh, especially when it comes to Pinot. Um, I like um, a decent phenolic presence. Um, I like generosity and density and richness. As it just so happens, Tony also likes those same things, which again, I think why this relationship's worked so well. I'm not trying to move the, um, the stylistic goals in a direction that he's not comfortable with. Um, I have definitely had a pre uh, um, uh, an impact on the way the wines are made now. Um, I know most of what I know from Tony, mm -hmm. so that's my foundation. So I can rest upon the laurels 
of this style that he's created and I've shaped them to be, have my personal touch on them. Um, an example, um, when I first started here, we, we liked whole cluster, Tony likes whole cluster. Um, and so we would do some amount of whole cluster in the tanks. Uh, as it turns out, over the course of you know, the last 10 years, I've realized I love whole cluster. I don't just like it. And um, we're, rather than being 10% whole cluster, I make most of the wines with 50 to 60% whole cluster. So more than half the weight of the tank um, is just whole clusters. Um, I think that has a pretty profound effect on um, the experience that people get from the wines. Um, the other thing is I, I prefer just native fermentation. Um, we've always been on the cusp of native fermentation, but never really been willing to make the leap. And I just have been comfortable making the leap. And mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've stepped off that cliff and not fallen. And um, again, I think it gives the wines more personality. Mm -hmm. It gives them more personality that's true to who we are, to what our winery is, what our cellar environment is. Um, it takes some of the genericness out of it. So mm -hmm. we want, I want the wines to be as interesting and as unique a personalities as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's what separates everybody. And I want them to, I want them to you know, obviously express our vineyard. It's, uh, and, and they can't help it but express our vineyard. That's mm -hmm. the way Pinot and Chardonnay are. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the vineyard a little bit. Obviously, you're, you're, you're kind of your first, first love in the wine industry, the vineyard, a biodynamic vineyard here. Tell me about uh, the, the challenges of that and the, the, the benefits of that from your perspective. Well, um, I'll start with the challenges. The challenges, um, they can be pretty profound. Um, moving towards organics, coming off of what we might call sustainable or you know, able to use uh, synthetic systemic mm -hmm. uh, fungicides in particular. Um, there's a big leap of faith there. And it's not just a leap of faith, there has to be an adaptation in uh, protocol. Um, the amount of times we have to drive the vineyard has you know, almost doubled. Mm -hmm. um, we can't rely on the persistent nature of, of uh, synthetic fungicides um, to keep the grapes safe from botrytis and powdery mildew. We, we're using more um, sort of, I'll call them old school, some new school as well, but sulfur, uh, some biologicals. Um, but they, um, they need to be refreshed every seven days, seven to 10, 10 if you're lucky, but generally seven versus maybe 14 days with a synthetic. So right there, you have to uh, make that appropriate adjustment um, or you can really pay the consequence. You also need to have an understanding that it's gonna require more attention to individual vines. You're gonna need to be more, uh, willing to put in more um, you know, human time out there, pulling more leaves, doing more shoot positioning, thinking of um, airflow, drainage. How do, we, how do we allow our grapes, mm -hmm. our vines, to um, lose moisture earlier in the day so that they're not uh, harboring a, um, a conducive environment for, for, for fungus mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. um, biodynamics um, is a step beyond that. And again, I view biodynamics again, is allowing the, the vineyard, the property, to just express itself more, more, uh, more honestly. So it feels great for me because, as I said, I'm interested in making wines that have as unique a personalities as possible. And I think that goes right there with it. I think that's just another step towards accomplishing that goal. Mm -hmm.
You talked about the the rapid growth here. We, we interviewed Hallie earlier today, and she talked about sort of the rapid growth of the company from in, in that kind of the la in that the time when you were getting started here. Uh, from your perspective, uh, again, the, what, what what changed for you with the kind of the scaling of of enterprise here? What, what what was important for you, and and how did you kind of deal with that rapid growth? Well, I don't know if I ever dealt with it. It's the problem. <laughs> Just merely survived it. Yeah, uh, I've used those very words actually. I think. Uh, you know, you could say that unless you own the company, a lot of winemakers are just, they're surviving. Mm -hmm. And um, you could say that of lots of artists in other, uh, in other areas of art. They kind of just survive. And um, I don't think that's untrue. I think winemakers just try to survive. We try to, we try to make the wines that, uh, the good ones, we try to make the wines that, um, that we honestly love and stay away from trends just for the sake of them being trends or ratings, which are very tempting. Um, but in that essence, you're sort of surviving. And um, it sort of, I think, reveals who the true survivors are. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that refuse to give up. Um, how did I deal with the rapid growth? Just took it one day at a time. Uh, one week at a time, one month at a time. I realize that's a cliche. But it's, it's the truth. Um, I don't think I could define or formulate how you survive rapid growth. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Be ready for change. Learn to adapt and overcome. Hmm. And um, resistance to change is, is uh, generally unhealthy in such situations. So um, I had to reinvent myself, for sure. Or discover new parts about myself that uh, I did have that resiliency. I did have that, um, that flexibility. You know, maybe be like what Bruce Lee would say, be like water. Like it. So what do you see as, how, how would you define what's, what Soder is now, what Mineral Springs Ranch is now, and what do you see kind of for the future? What's, what's next for, for this project? Well, what's next for I mean, what's next for me is a continuation of doing exactly what I've been doing, making better wines every single year. Um, what's next for Soder Vineyards? I think obviously, you know, with uh, with uh, the sale of North our North Valley brand, um, we are honing in our concentration towards our state vineyards. Um, we have three vineyards now, rather than just one, um, and we're going to be um, again mostly concentrated on that, trying to make wines that now don't just represent Mineral Springs, but also represent our Yolamity Vineyard and our River Ridge Vineyard. So um, yeah, an estate, an estate concentration. Um, again, everywhere, um, in everything I just said, you know, the same, the same thing lies true. Every one of those wines must be truly amazing. Mm -hmm. Or I won't be satisfied, and I know Tony won't be satisfied. Mm -hmm. So we kind of skipped over this question. We'll go back to it now. Uh, 2020, obviously, interesting oh, year. Oh, God, you have to bring up 2020? Interesting year, sorry. <laughs> it's an archive, it's what we do. So obviously a couple things going on in 2020. Let's, let's start with the, the pandemic and, and its sort of immediate impact on you and, and impact on, on your work and on, on Soder. Yeah, well, I think, you know, like everybody, immediately I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is uh, really happening. And um, is everything just going to get shut down? Am I... What's going to happen to my babies that are in barrel? You know, what if, what if Tony couldn't, 
pay me to, to, to come here? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I told Tony, you don't need to pay me. I will continue to come here. I don't care if you can't afford me. I promise you I will continue to show up. And I don't care if it's illegal for me to come here. I will come here and make sure that, that you know, our wines, you know, are not any worse for this vintage. And um, I don't know if he knew I was serious. I think he did, but I don't know. Um, fortunately, it never came to that. Mm -hmm. And um, we, he was able to keep us all employed so that we could, you know, watch over the wines of 2020. Uh, so yeah, the pandemic, um, and then obviously it slowed down sales, you know, mm. restaurants closed, uh, people weren't, weren't necessarily buying expensive wine because that's one of the biggest venues to buy expensive wine when you're out on the town. So that was really hard. We had to adapt. We're, we're fortunately blessed with a very, uh, very decent sized following, uh, mm. that being our wine club who continued to buy our wines. Um, if any of them are listening, thank you so much. You know, that's, uh, that's not enough, you know. I'll tell each one of them thank you. But, um, so, um, yeah, like everybody, wow, 2020, thanks. You know, uh, it made life more challenging than it needs to be, for sure. It also gained a lot of appreciation for things I didn't have appreciation for. Um, spent more time at home. You know, I had uh, more, more daddy duties. Um, got to spend more time with my kids. Um, got back into exercise, which I really needed to. Um, so it wasn't all terrible. Um, it made me a better winemaker for sure. I, you know, I made some extraordinary wines in 2020, the best wines I've ever made. But, um, and I'm sure you're going here next, you know, 2020 wasn't just the year of the pandemic. It was also a year of a lot of wildfires here mm -hmm. in Oregon. And um, so the wines aren't without challenge. Wines are always with challenge, no matter what year. And challenge is just there to overcome, in my opinion, if you can. And uh, I sit here before you saying we are overcoming it. And we have some extraordinary wines in the cellar. Um, and it's just allowed me an opportunity to, to become a better winemaker, to learn a new skill set, uh, how to deal with said wines. Um, even if I never have another vintage where there's um, a bunch of wildfires around us, I'll still, some of this knowledge I've now gained is still applicable mm -hmm. in other vintages. Mm -hmm. What were the sort of the specific challenges from the, the wildfires during harvest and what were some of the, the, the ways you overcame them? Well, the biggest one was um, morale, you know, keeping people's spirits up. And um, I used to very, very, very much be a pessimist, very much. Maybe Oregonians are born that way. I don't know. It's the long winters. Um, it was an opportunity for me to, to become an optimist. And um, again, I'm blessed with a really excellent assistant winemaker, and she's right there with me is, you know, it doesn't do any good to be pessimistic when clearly everything around you is, um, is troubling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, adding, adding whining and grief to trouble, just, it just doesn't help. You're not making any progress. And I saw a lot of my other industry colleagues uh, succumb to that, you know, to just giving up or being mad at the world. Didn't, didn't do any good. Mm -hmm. I look at it as a challenge, just I'm still going to make the very best wines I possibly can. Um, and we did. Um, the morale was hard though. Uh, you know, we were, we had a, um, 
a responsibility and a duty towards our interns who are here to help us make wine, um, both for their safety, but also I wanted them to have a full vintage. I didn't want to send them home. I didn't want them to have a vintage that we wouldn't say really counted. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to keep their spirits up. And that was, that was truly challenging. Mm -hmm. um, we were wearing masks, not just because of uh, the pandemic, but we were wearing masks because there was so much smoke. Mm -hmm. It was difficult to breathe. And um, that starts to weigh on you after the 10th the or so day of that. And uh, things start to seem pretty bleak. And, um, but again, I sit here saying we were successful, keeping almost everybody um, on the up and up, mm -hmm. uh, keeping their spirits up. Uh, it meant finding new ways to bring joy and cheer to the, to the team beyond the normal, which is usually just really amazing Oaxacan food. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Not too bad. On, on the yeah. winemaking side, obviously, you mentioned kind of having to become a better winemaker because of it. What were some of the, how, how have the wines turned out the way they have it? And what were some of the strategies you used? And, and what do you kind of foresee if this happens again? What, what have you learned from this? Um, well, I think the, you know, the first thing I've learned is um, don't judge a book by its cover. Just because it looks one way does not mean that it's going to be that way. Um, that works in both directions. So you can say something on the long lines just because it looks really smoky doesn't mean it's going to be really smoky. And just because it didn't look very smoky doesn't mean it's not going to be smoky. I saw both. I saw every iteration of level of smoke. Um, I think the one thing we've we're really successful with is um, and is true to my my nature and style for making wine is don't panic a lot of people panicked a lot um, there will be a lot of different levels of um, generosity of wine in Oregon this year because it induced panic and I don't you know it's human I think um, Pressure under fire, whatever you want to call it. Um, just because someone's shooting at you doesn't mean you start throwing up your arms and running away. You know, figure things out, calm yourself down, take a bunch of deep breaths, realize that you're still there to accomplish a mission. And I was still here to accomplish a mission, and that was to make amazing wines. And so, uh, did not rush out to the vineyard and just pick everything uh, at the first sign. I said, you know, okay still want to make amazing wines. My idea for amazing wines are wines with um, honest to goodness generosity. Not overripe, but definitely not underripe. And so I just said, there's no way I'm picking these grapes too early. Um, and I'm thankful that Tony backed me up in that. And I'm thankful that we accomplished it. We may have wines that have great generosity. And great generosity, um, substance, can handle more flaw than a, a skinnier version of that wine, which will showcase just its flaw. Mm -hmm. um, we were creative in the winery uh, with all organic treatments, uh, mostly just yeast-based. Mm -hmm. So we added lots and lots of yeast and continue to add yeast to the wines. These lovely little biological animals um, have an amazing propensity to clean, and they have continued to work for me. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I've not had to step out of uh, or do anything that my um, organic or biodynamic certifiers would be angry about. I've done nothing, I've not been tempted, <laughs> and have not had to resort to just giving up on that certification. So uh, the 2020 wines still 
uh, to this day remain uh, low sulfur, um, nothing uh, synthetic. Um, again, everything that I've done um, will make them a wholesome product. Mm -hmm. So thinking back to kind of your first your first work in the Oregon wine industry, what are the what are the biggest changes you've seen in, in Oregon wine as an industry? And oh my gosh! What does what does it look what does it, what does it look like now versus what it looked Oregon's like when you started? Oregon's changed. <laughs> uh, it's the traffic, of course. You know that's what every Oregonian would say. It's been here for traffic and even the last ten years everywhere. And the real estate prices. And oh, the real. Let's not talk about that. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna upset me. Uh, the it, things have gotten really busy. Um, yeah, there's a lot more cars on the road. I used to drive from Sherwood to here every day, and if I had a car behind me, I was like griping about it. And now, if I don't have six cars in front of me and 15 cars behind me, it's a light day. And that's coming out into the middle of nowhere. So uh, I can only imagine what people uh, endure on the way to Portland every morning. Um, I think more uh, directed towards what's happened in the wine world, things have gotten really busy. Um, a lot of attention is now being paid to Oregon that wasn't necessarily there beforehand. I think, you know, the, the Druins, uh, you know, Domain Druin, uh, I admire them so much because they saw the writing on the walls not five years ago, but uh, 30 something years ago. And um, how intelligent are they? And uh, now we're seeing, you know, French company after French company, California winery after California winery. Uh, moving up here and uh, yeah, the real estate has gotten really expensive because of, of this. There's a realization that the, um, the probability or the possibility of making not just good wines, but truly amazing works of art here in Oregon, it's there. Um, and so again, I don't blame these, these other wineries. I'm thrilled and again, count my blessings that I get to work at one and I was here early enough in my career to uh, be afforded that opportunity to sort of work my way up the food chain here. Um, but yeah, it's, things have gotten really busy. Um, and what comes with that is, again, no room for, for, for failure. People, if people are watching, we really have to deliver. Mm -hmm. And um, that just adds, again, more stress to this very stressful job. You talked about, you've talked about your, your competitiveness. Uh, I'm curious how it's a collaborative industry, obviously, but you're, you're surrounded by competitors. So how, how does it manifest as a competitive winemaker? Um, well, I'll, I mean, most of the competition is within my own head, you know. Um, having said that, we still want to make better wine than other people, but having said that, the more wineries that make great wine, the better Oregon is the whole. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not pure co competition. Um, I still want to... Um, I still want to be top of top of the game, um, but I also want the rest of my colleagues to be to be right there as well. Because again, we will all benefit from each other. Um, collaboration is very important in wine, extraordinarily important. And it's probably this is probably the only competitive industry, again, because we're artists, where we value the opinion of other artists. Um, just I mean, it's it's not a weekly basis post. Pre-pandemic, at definitely a weekly basis, I'm tasting with another winemaker who I uh, both trust their palate and trust their opinion on to come taste my wines. I want to know. I want to know what they think. They want to know what we're doing. Uh, so it's a win-win situation. And um, 
uh, that's kind of the, been one of the things we've been missing since the pandemic starts is we can't have that interaction mm -hmm. with other artists on, on what their art looks like. So with the same kind of thought, what, what about the sort of what you've seen change in Oregon? What, what do you see as you look ahead for the industry? What, what is the industry going to look like coming out of the pandemic in the next few years and, and, and beyond? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it would be wrong to say I'm not worried about what it looks like. I mean, again, I hope, I hope that Oregon can always stay true to itself, being Oregon. Um, I don't know if that'll be able to happen. We'll see. Um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and I'm going to keep making wines that I truly love and not going after scores uh, specifically. Uh, I'm going to make wines that I want to drink at my house and I'm going to be proud of and I want to show the world. Um, I hope that that's what all the other winemakers do as well. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I, don't know, I don't know that answer. That answer is for God, the universe, whom, whomever. <laughs> not for me. I'm going to just keep going. Is there a, something specific in the future that you are, are hoping for or, or at the same token are, are fearful of? Um, for me personally or for, for the wine industry or? Either. Well, I mean, I've always had the dream of owning a vineyard, but as you mentioned, real estate prices are astronomical compared to where they used to be. I, I'm, I'm fearful that'll never be able to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would consider that a travesty um, because here I am uh, with a legitimate amount of talent to actually do something with that land and uh, it being just out of reach is uh, infuriating to say the least. Um, what I'd be fearful for the industry, again, is that it um, becomes too pretentious. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a certain amount of pretension in wine. It needs it. It is a, uh, it's a luxury good. But at some point, you move past pretentious into some undefined term that uh, defines some other regions in the United States that I really don't care for us to become. I would care. I would prefer not to see gargoyles at the front of everyone's gate, um, and big fancy, big fancy gates. I'd rather see the place covered with vineyards and honest to goodness, people like myself trying to to truly just make amazing wines. So, if you were asked your your advice or your words of wisdom about joining the industry, uh, what, what what would your words of wisdom be to someone who wanted to join? Um, go for it, but don't go half-assed. I think there's no room for, for testing the waters. I think if you want and desire to be successful in this industry, you've got to commit. You've got to know you want to do it. Even if you don't know why you want to do it, you've got to know you want to do it. And there's, there's room. There's definitely room. So, um, but be ready for um, an immensely difficult job and just be ready to be ready to work your butt off. I think that's it. I mean, I, I have this opportunity to mentor people every single year. And the, the first thing I tell them, uh, especially if, if they're fortunate enough to get a job interview, is I said, just tell the winemaker you'll do whatever, you, whatever they ask you to do. It's like the Forrest Gump answer, right? I'm here to do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. And that is the most beautiful answer because that's all people, that's all you need to tell them. I'll just do whatever you ask me to do. I'm, I'm a sponge. I'm going to work harder than anybody else. Um, that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I, I didn't ask that I should have? Anything I hope not. For someone who described himself as an introvert, those were some awfully interesting answers. So. Uh, well, like I said, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, and I know that I'm an introvert, which means if I'm going to be a perfectionist too, I know I have to try to, to, to figure out how to not be an introvert in such situations. So I like it. I, like it. I don't half-ass anything. <laughs> My, my wife actually said this very specifically, Chris doesn't half-ass anything, so much so that when we had kids, we had twins. That's right. Which is a true story. There you go. Way to so, go. Um, well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. And, um, thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Uh, I hope none of that makes me sound too pretentious. You know, <laughs> Edit it out, please, if it does. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for meeting all of you. Join the wine industry. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.